0: You are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host,
1: Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for episode forty-eight, Staffing the Court. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. When it comes to the operations of the court, we focus a lot on what the judges do, and rightfully so, but the operations of a Florida Appellate Court are dependent upon an entire staff of lawyers and non-lawyers who work together to turn the wheels of justice. In this episode, we'll focus on the work of some of the attorneys that support the court with 2nd DCA Career Staff Attorney Jared Kukar. So, Jared, thanks for appearing on my podcast yet again. It's always good to have you on the show.
0: Always good to be here. I'm, I'm shocked that you're having me back again, but I'm happy to do it.
1: Well, and I should say that we are recording from the Issues on Appeal outside studio. Uh, this time, in person, so we we might get some extraneous noise, but uh, it's good to record in person again. I have not recorded many shows in person since the pandemic.
0: So, uh, you, anytime I get the chance to to get out like this, it's, it's fantastic. So we're socially distanced, um, enjoying the beautiful Florida weather today. It's actually a very lovely what seventy five degrees. And oh yeah, it's gorgeous. Overcast, so it's all the better.
1: So. Since we last talked, um, you have had a, a, a change of employment, and uh, you previously worked at the Second District Court of Appeal uh, in your past, and you are back.
0: I am. I am I'm very excited to be back. I, I worked for the Second District back up through 2012 or so in Central Staff and then with uh, with Judge uh, Daryl Casanueva, and just recently I've gone back to the Second DCA now for the Honorable Stephen T. Northcutt. I'm a career staff attorney in his suite now.
1: And I thought we should talk a little bit about what what you do and what the other, you know, there are a lot of lawyers at the court who are uh, not judges. In addition to the judges, there are a lot of lawyers at the court that are necessary to keep the court functioning. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about, you know, some of some of those roles. And as part of that, we'll probably talk about how cases progress through the court and that sort of thing, If that uh, if that sounds good to you. Sounds great to me. And I will say that uh, your experience, of course, is with the Second District Court of Appeal. I am saying from a position of not knowing uh, anything from the inside, but I'm thinking that you know a lot of what we talk about is generally applicable to other courts, but certainly uh, not specifically applicable. But if, if this, any other DCAs feel jealous that they would like to be on the podcast, then uh, anybody can contact me, and, and we'll talk about their courts, too.
0: Nice plug. I like it.
1: <laughs> so... Tell me about, I know, first of all, as, as a big general category uh, of attorneys who work at the court, uh, there's central staff and there's judicial staff. Can you talk about that distinction?
0: Sure. So, so like you said, there, there's two categories, and there's a central staff, which, uh, I can, you know, I just looked at this the other day. I want to say it's comprised of about 10 attorneys, although I might be off by one or two. I know it's uh, you know varied throughout the years. But... There's there's about 10 attorneys there with a director um, Who I don't think he's appeared on your podcast before Not yet Austin.
1: <laughs> um,
0: but there's a director and about 10 attorneys And they handle uh, Certain types of cases And then they also handle any motions Or um, Things that need to be taken care of early on in a case Before all the briefs are in uh, And then you also have judicial staff attorneys, where each judge on the court has two staff attorneys working directly for them, and they handle uh, post-perfection cases. Any of the appeals, almost any of the appeals that um, have are fully briefed, they go to the suites and a staff attorney will assist the judge and the panel on deciding those, and any motions that come in after that point as well.
1: Now, before we go farther, um, we had mentioned, or you had said you were a career staff attorney. So Mm -hmm. I think we're making a distinction there, right? That there are uh, sort of, quote-unquote, permanent positions and more transient positions. Is that right?
0: That is up to the judge and up to the circumstances as well. So um, I'm a career staff attorney, which is really just a... It's more of a, um, a designation offered by the state for purposes of state employment. So I have an, a, a sufficient number of years and experience that they designate me as a career staff attorney and that I'm sort of paid commensurately. Um but as far as within each suite, it's that, that designation doesn't necessarily match with whether or not you're planning on being at the court for a certain amount of time, or if you're like a, you know, the traditional two-year clerk you might think of. Um, each judge gets to decide those independently. Many judges will, I'd say, most judges, especially during this pandemic, are largely taking on career staff attorneys or not, you know, cutting anybody loose in any sort of, you know, mean way of saying, hey, you've done your two years, get out. Um, But, you know, some judges do have that two-year spot that they will cycle through and and get new people in to kind of train and offer mentoring um, every few years. In my suite, although I just started there, I, I guess I'm technically... I'm kind of the senior attorney, but also not because, I, you know, I'm, I just started there again. Um, but our my fellow staff attorney in my suite, uh, Ben, he's been there for about three years. I believe his plan is to kind of head out into the wild blue yonder at some point. But um, I, he's not under any requirement to do so. So we'll see. Best guess on what plane that is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> some, something in the St. Pete Clearwater. <laughs> So uh, is that true on the on the central staff side, too, or do those lawyers tend to be more long-term, or are there two-year rotating slots on that side of the house as well? Central staff, I
0: don't think anybody's on a kind of designated rotating slot in central staff. Um, a lot of attorneys will will start with central staff and then oftentimes move from there to a sweet spot, Not necessarily that there's anything better or worse in the suites. It just seems to be how it's traditionally gone. But also that reverse happens as well. Sometimes um, more often when a judge might retire or or leave the court, the attorneys for that judge, some of them may end up going to central staff and then spending the next 10 years in central staff just by choice. So you can transition in and out. I don't think there's any spot in central staff that's really designated as a two-year cycling position. But just you know, just from experience, it does seem to cycle a little bit more on the whole than some of the suites.
1: And are those those positions are not specifically hired by any particular judge? Are they hired by the by the director of central staff?
0: So that's a good question. I believe they are hired by the director of central staff. It used to be with the approval of a particular judge a long time ago, back when I first started with the court in central staff. Um, there was a judge that was assigned to kind of almost supervise, but not necessarily the central staff wing. Uh, I, that doesn't happen anymore. There's no specific judge assigned to central staff. The director is the supervisor. Then again, any hiring decisions in the court, um, I believe the judges have some say if they want, want it, but honestly, I don't know exactly how that works right now.
1: On the uh, on the judicial side, that the judges take a more active role in deciding who their particular staff attorney is going to be. Yes,
0: on, on the judicial side, each judge has full and total discretion over uh, who that judge hires. At least as as long as the attorney is um, an actual licensed attorney for the Florida Bar, or uh, I believe plant like have, having just taken the bar or something like that, and about to be a licensed attorney.
1: So can you talk about a little bit, uh, your role as a staff attorney, what is your involvement in the uh, progress of a case through the court?
0: Well, in in my role as a judicial staff attorney, um, I will not typically see a case until all the briefs have been filed, um, and it has been a little bit through the ringer with my judicial assistant, uh, and then given to me in the form of a... Draft compilation, which I guess is the first uh, term we get to define, this is for those of your listeners who have you know gone to any second dCA event they 've heard this over and over again for the past ten or fifteen years
1: but because this is sort of particular to the second dCA as far as I know
0: as far as I know yes mm-hmm. um, and and it's changed a little bit over the years and and so it's important, but the judicial assistant will take the briefs that have been filed and Compile them into a single document, meaning um, basically a single Word file, where you might have you'll have the statement of case and facts from the appellant first, followed by the statement of case and facts from the appellee if there is one. Following that, and then each section goes you know one after the other. So issue one, it'll be the appellant's issue one, appellee's answer. And reply, the issue two, same thing. And that's all put into a single document and then um, handed over to the staff attorney to take a look at. At that point, and, and how it works now, and really, it's not too much different than when I was there in uh, 2012 and earlier, is that I'll do, I don't want to call it a cursory review, but I'm not changing anybody's language. Um, and that's the most important thing, is that the judges see what the attorneys wrote, um, including... Any typos, things like that. I leave those completely it would alone. it advise
1: word choices, that sort of thing. <laughs> I, I don't do
0: anything with any of that. Um, uh, the judges will see what you wrote. So and that's all I can say about that. But I'll read it thoroughly. Um, I will review your record sites. If I need to change something to make it a little bit more readable, as far as citations or things like that, just you know, things that wouldn't look you know better or worse upon the attorney but just to make it easier for my judge to be able to read through it quickly um I can change little things like that but for the most part I'm leaving almost everything alone and only inserting the dreaded staff attorney note or SAN if I see something that has been misrepresented or there's a point that I feel like I need to add in something a, a case that has been you know a case that's red flagged in, in Westlaw and has been you know, quashed or reversed or something. A a statement of the record that in my review of the record, well, technically that's true. You know, it might be a very it might be true by omission of fifteen other things that I might put in and saying, eh, I don't know about this. Let me point you to a couple other parts in the record you might want to look at. Um, but that's the extent of my my review and changing of any briefs it's really just adding the the judges will see the briefs and those staff attorney notes are usually few and far between so i
1: don't want to put you on the spot with how how you specifically do your job but but in theory then each and every record site in a brief is being checked against the record you know
0: i I, i'll i'll admit to this i probably don't check each and every record site um there are plenty of record sites that have no bearing on what the court's going to to need to know. Sure. Um, you know, and, and I think that's probably more so in an answer brief. If, if the initial brief has done a, a fairly decent job and accurately, you know, put in record sites, I may not double check every single record site in the answer brief if it's just reciting things I've already checked or things that are, you know. Collateral to the actual issues, but I'll definitely look at any record site that is relevant to the issues that a race on appeal and double check those. And 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 later on, you know, there's there's a second part after the compilation. We we prepare a bench memo or an analysis and i'll I'll surely be looking carefully at anything that's important in the record at that point, including record sites and While, I may not technically check the record site and, and put the right number in. I will be looking at what is being used as authority or factual a basis for. Any
1: issue. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And um, you know, I think that I oversight to the record, uh, probably in my in my statement of facts, just because I, I feel like every sentence should have a site. I would but, much rather that. Yeah. But certainly you're right. Some of those things are are background facts, they're immaterial, you know, whether whether they're true or not, whether the record site is is completely accurate or not is really immaterial to to the issue. So it certainly makes sense from from a logical perspective and an efficiency perspective that the court focuses on those things that matter.
0: You know, and, and some of that goes to how each staff attorney might might handle preparing their own summaries or, sorry, compilations is, is the proper term, but they're shorthanded as summary sometimes. And, you know, how I do my review might differ a little bit from case to case. Um, more often than not, I will typically honestly read the record uh, I review the record entirely from front to back On my own um, And I'll do that well, I, guess, I guess let me let me take one step back Usually I'll skim the brief To get an idea of what the issues are And then I will read the record Front to back um, And get a real feel for what happened in the case And only then do I go back to the brief Or my compilation And check over everything And that way I don't necessarily have to check every record site You know, I, There are a lot of things that I'll remember like, yeah, that's that's about what happened and, and it doesn't really matter that much. I'm not gonna go check the page three hundred fifty-six and make sure that's exactly uh what was said in what way and that's the right page number. It doesn't really matter. But if that way if I'm if I'm doing this after reading the record, I'll definitely catch anything that, that sticks out that is like no, I don't remember that or I definitely don't remember it happening that way. And That will make me focus more on that kind of issue and double-check those sites more thoroughly. So I guess that's my standard practice is to kind of get my feel of the record on my own and then go read the briefs and check the record sites that are important to the issues and anything else that might stand out to me one way or the other, either something I didn't catch the first time or... Something that sounds different than what I remember,
1: right? How often do you find that there are issues with the with the record citations? You know, something other than an an innocent, uh, you know, typographical error. Do you do you often often is a is a loaded word, I guess. But I mean, do, do you frequently come across? instances where you feel like the records citation has been stretched a bit or, you know, how often do the dreaded uh, staff attorney notes uh, go in and stuff like that?
0: I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's often that that there's something going on that I, I have to, that I question whether there's a, you know, an improper motivation behind it or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, I would hope not. Right? No, no. I, I you know, we, we've both been in practice in, in this region this geographical region of the 2nd D.C.A. for a long time. And um, and the appellate attorneys and the appellate bar in this area is kind of well-renowned, frankly, throughout the state, I think. Um, it, it's it's a good bar. And, and the court, um, I, I can't speak for the entire court, but I think you had Judge Cruz on the other day, a couple episodes back. And, I did. And she... And she you know, stressed how how great the bar is around here and how much the judges appreciate that. And you know, I'll, I'll defer to Judge Kuzav on that. That, that. That's that's the courts um, that's the court's feeling. So, and, and I think it's well deserved. I, I rarely find um, anything that I I question if there was an improper motive. It's usually often either just a mistake or an oversight or. Um, typo, maybe t- definitely. There, there, mm-hmm. There's always some typos, and, and you know who isn't who hasn't been guilty of that
1: before. But today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at 5525 And their contact information is always in the show notes. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. I suggest you take a moment, visit their website, courtsurety.com. It's full of valuable resources, including a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements and a comprehensive FAQ on collateral, underwriting, and the application process. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. So now, you had mentioned there's uh, when you get through with the review of the compilation brief, what's the next step for you?
0: Well, that compilation gets sent off to the panel of three judges who have been assigned to the case. While that is sent off, I will start working on the analysis, which is basically my bench memo. It's it's the memo that will go to the panel with both my analysis of the issues and my recommended disposition. Um, so I'll draft that that analysis, and then we'll, if I need to, speak with my judge about it in advance, or while I'm preparing, for it, preparing it, or... Or he, you know, he may not need to discuss with me anything until he goes and reviews it at, at the end. But it will go to, you know, the primary judge, my judge on the case, um, and he'll review it and he'll make any comments to me if there needs to be some changes or he has some different thoughts and wants me to check out something. And then once he approves it, it gets sent to the other two judges on the panel. So, um, And then, of course, that works for the other two judges as well. Their staff attorneys are doing the same thing and then circulating their analyses for the three-judge panel. I neglected to say one thing, though, that that most judges only ask for analyses on oral argument waived cases. Um, oral argument cases for most judges don't get a separate analysis. The judges are looking just at the compilation and doing their own research. You know and if they have any questions, they can of course ask their staff attorney to help with anything but uh, we 're not often doing that analysis as a matter of course
1: so the the compilation brief is put together by the by a staff attorney in the suite of the judge who is primary on that case yes, and shared with all the other judges yes, and if there is an analysis done in a uh, OA waived case. There's only one done that it, that staff attorney does an analysis for a, for the three judge panel. Yes. Okay. So just from a numbers perspective, your judge is the primary judge on one third of the cases that he or she is assigned to, and there are two staff attorneys in your suite. So you you are involved in half of one-third of the cases in front of your judge is that is that the math
0: yes i i I am yeah i guess i'm i'm (laughs) one-sixth of the judges my my judge will review at least in oral argument waves and oral argument panels because there are other things that come up that are more emergencies and things like that but on any oral argument waves or oral argument panels
1: i will be responsible for one-sixth of the cases my judge sees so now what about when the case um is conference if it's an OA waived or when an oral argument occurs on an OA case, what what's your role after that?
0: That's one thing that that's changed a little bit during the pandemic is for an oral for an OAW OAW case, an oral argument waived case, traditionally, um you would have the three judges meet in a room with usually the three staff attorneys that they've selected for that panel. Each judge is going to have two OAWs and two OAs a month. And most of the judges split their two panels of each, one staff attorney to each. Not all of them. Some of the judges just split cases up and might have both of their staff attorneys doing a few of one and a few of the other. But um, more often than not, it's the staff attorney will take care of one of the OAW panels and one of the OA panels. So for the oral argument wave uh, panel... It would typically be the three judges, and there are three or a few more staff attorneys total that have worked on the cases for that. And the staff attorney would kind of give a very quick, almost refresher, you know, a one-minute presentation of the analysis that that the judges have already read, and ask if there are any questions, be there to answer anything about the record, and then the judges would decide with the discussion with the staff attorney as well. that's a little bit different during the pandemic. We're not meeting, obviously. Uh, so the judges are conferencing on their own. Uh, staff attorneys can get involved when need be, but but typically, of course, the judges have our analyses. So. If they have a question, more often than not, they're sending us an email in advance letting us know, I'm not sure about this or I have a concern about this, and we're dealing with any questions in advance, and then there isn't a meeting with staff attorneys involved because you know we're all working from home at the moment. So that's kind of how the cases get decided, and it's a little bit different. Obviously, for OA cases, you, you, you know, you're know you watching OA online, so uh, you're seeing the judges do that, and they will conference as they need to afterwards. Um, they'll bring in a staff attorney if they need to afterwards, but you know, more often than not, they're talking amongst themselves and then coming back and reporting to the staff attorney that worked on it, saying, "Hey, this is what happened." After either one, the if it's a if it's a case is going to be a PCA or a per denial or anything like that, there's not much more for the staff attorney to do. Um, the judicial assistant will. Send the draft opinion You know, the procurement denial opinion To the clerk's office It'll have an appropriate date that's about A week and a half to two weeks out And then it gets issued on that date If there's any motions that are pending um, The staff is going to have to make sure Those are taken care of, like any fee motions Or things like that, and Usually those are discussed at the panel, too, and, and taken care of as well at that point. But um, the staff attorney will just make sure that there's nothing left sitting out there that, that should, be, should be ruled on. If the case is going to be an opinion, a written opinion, either either reversing or affirming or something else, each judge might do this differently. I know some judges for oral argument cases will tend to like to take the first draft on oral argument cases for themselves. Other judges, it, they'll just have the staff attorney do the first draft on everything, and there, there's every everything in between. Um, every suite's going to be different on that. Uh, the judges I have worked with typically the staff attorney will take the first shot on most of them, and you know give the judge a a rough draft of. Uh, whatever the opinion is going to be, unless the judge has some you know, specifically said no i 'll take that one, which happens to
1: so now, what about situations where there are post judgment motions filed, motion for rehearing or rehearing in bonk or request for a written opinion what's what 's your role then
0: well i 'll admit I actually since i 've only been with the court for about a month and a half at this point for the second time i haven 't dealt with any in the in the new uh, pandemic. Everybody, remote world of of um, of uh, the current day, but I could share with you how they used to work, and and I think this is generally the same thing: is that uh, most suites, the staff attorney who is assigned to the case uh, for the primary judge will take the first look at whatever motion for rehearing or rehearing on bunk or certification or any of those. We'll take the first look at it, um, go speak with the primary judge with. Uh, any recommendations or anything like that, or any questions. Um, usually, won't do a significant written analysis, maybe an email with, with here's the points they bring up, and here's the cases I've looked at them, and, and here's what it looks like, and give them a recommendation. And then the, the judge will kind of decide what to do from there. Um, but of course, it'll get circulated to the panel, whether it's circulated informally with the judge, you know, kind of. Well, anybody passing it on and saying, "Hey, we we we've looked at this motion. We we don't see any merit to it. We're just gonna. We recommend denying it." That does happen, or whether there's an, an email analysis of some sort that goes with it. It kind of varies case by case. I honestly don't remember the procedures for hearing on bunk. I need to refresh my memory on those. <laughs> But there are some procedures, I'll just leave it loosely out there, there are some procedures that the judges decide whether the entire court needs to look at it or whether the panel can just deal with it on its own and deny it. And if the entire court needs to see it, it will get circulated appropriately. If it is a case that is going on bunk, I know the judges will, I think as, as part of a rule, but I'm not positive, will discuss it at their monthly court conference, which is just the judges, but all of them in one room or virtual <laughs> one room. One Zoom room? Yes, probably a Zoom room these days. But, but all the judges will discuss it together without anybody there um, and decide what to do on a case that the court is considering going on back on.
1: Now, one of the things I have heard uh, different judges of the court talk about that I think is, is really interesting uh, is that when there is a written opinion that's being issued by, by any panel, uh, on any case that that opinion gets circulated to the entire court it uh, does. for comment and review before it goes out. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Absolutely.
0: Um, every opinion that goes out of the court is reviewed by every staff attorney, central staff and whatnot in the court and every other judge. So um, when the opinions are about to be issued... Basically, the clerk's office will send an email saying, here are the opinions that are going to be issued. I think it's usually about a week in advance or a week and a half in advance. And as part of a staff attorney's duty, no matter where you work, um, your job is to review all those. Now, the review is, you're not going to review it as you would if you were in your own suite reviewing you know, your, your fellow staff attorney's opinion or even a, another judge on a panel you know, if you're on a three judge panel and you were one of those uh, staff attorneys in that panel, you would probably do a more extensive review because it's before that point. When the whole court's reviewing things, it's not as if I'm typically going to do my own research sure. and double check all the authorities and things like that. But, you know, you have so much experience in the court, both as staff attorneys and judges, that when you have. I don't remember the numbers, but when you have the dozens and dozens of, of legal minds with so much experience looking at it, if there's something wrong, it's going to jump out to somebody. So above and beyond any clerical errors or typos or things like that, which we all check for. Also, reading it makes every, every attorney aware of what's going on, and... If we're all reading every opinion that goes out, somebody's going to catch it if it's inconsistent with something that's gone on previously, or if it's inconsistent with somebody something that you've researched on another issue. But every person does, in fact, review every every opinion.
1: No, I think that's fantastic, and I think that that, that serves so many purposes, like you said, for error checking, for consistency, for you know, just general you know motion or uh, you know direction that the court is going uh, I love the fact that uh, there's enough pride of of authorship and pride of work that everybody has a stake in making sure that every opinion is right and it really makes you think <laughs> You know, when when you're the uh, litigant who is wanting to file a motion for rehearing because you think something's wrong or overlooked, or you know, um, you have to consider how many people have actually looked at that opinion before it went out the door, right? That's true.
0: That's true. And and, and your point about the pride is is a good one, um, and it's probably one of the reasons that I, I most I'm so glad to be back at the court is is how collegial and how collaborative. Uh, everything is about every opinion that goes out. This is even just looking at the opinions as they're going out. Where, where you're just doing that review, it's more than a cursory review. It's you know, I, I will tell you, I've made comments on other people's opinions and sent them an email and say, "Hey, have you thought about this?" Uh, I've gotten several you know back from people. Everybody does do more than just rubber stamp it. It's it's a real joint effort of every person on the court, and it's it's fantastic.
1: And I can't personally remember ever seeing a typographical, you know, error or something like that an opinion that's come out. I mean, I'm sure it's happened, but but this explains why that doesn't happen, right? Because yes. so many people look at it before it goes out the door that that those things are are almost certain to get caught.
0: Yeah, absolutely, you'd be hard pressed to find one. And I won't say that I'm one of the best people at checking for, you know, minor grammatical issues. I do my job and, and I do it as well as I can. But there are some. There are some amazing, um, amazing writers and people who are, you know, brilliant linguists when it comes to writing. I just know every rule from uh, from the Gregg's Manual of Writing and everything, you know, all those other things, uh, Red Book and APA Style and a- anything you can think of. There are just people who just know that stuff. And... Um, we'll share it and, and i'm glad to receive comments like that because we all have our strengths and that's probably not what i'm buying so i'm very happy to have the help on anything i anything i'm writing
1: yeah no that's great it makes for a great uh, work product mm-hmm. now you had mentioned before that there are some types of things that, are, that arise outside of this normal course of of progressing through cases things that are more urgent emergency things that come up w- Talk to me about some of those things.
0: Sure. Um, well, there, there's a, As far as emergency type things, um, I guess one of the, the main things, and it's not necessarily an emergency, but it's expedited, is anything involving children. So your termination of parental rights appeals, things like that, those all hand, get handled in a separate manner. And uh, at this point, I believe attorneys from central staff do the lion's share of work on those now. With a panel of judges, and I'm not—I don't recall how they're assigned at this point. um, But it's not the same as being sent to a full-blown panel because it it can just be done quicker in a different way, while still preserving the 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 randomness of the of the selection. So I think at this point, central staff is doing largely anything involving expedited cases involving children. That attorney from that that. Group will handle it, and that gets done quickly. Uh, also, central staff does a lot of other things, and and those are you know outside the scope of judicial staff. The kind of procedure procedure I just uh, mentioned, um, they handle anything involving summary Rule threes, is what we call them, but post conviction motions, appeals from post conviction motions where there wasn't an evidentiary hearing, those get handled within central staff. Certiorari proceedings and other writs. They're not, they're not fully handled in central staff, but the, the attorney who's going to decide on a petition for writ of certiorari whether or not the jurisdictional prongs have been met to order a response, that's going to be a central staff attorney that decides that with the director of central staff and oftentimes with a judge or two to double check any case that gets disposed of before it's perfected central staff will typically take care of that, again, along with a panel of judges that's assigned to a motions panel, not the kind of suite panels we've been talking about so far. So central staff has a lot of separate duties, but they're full-fledged staff attorneys, just like any other staff attorney in the, in the court. They just do some different things, but there's some overlap as well.
1: Yeah, you know, it's just a, a different scope of work. Mm-hmm. So, Jared, one of the things I was curious about you know, as practitioners, when we have cases, uh, particularly oral argument cases, and we, we start waiting, <laughs> the clock starts running as soon as the argument is over, you know, right. whether we're, we're hoping for a PCA or whether we're not, um, we start watching the, watching the clock and watching the calendar. And, and it seems to me that in the past, um, there were times when I would argue a case on a Tuesday. And I would get the PCA in the, you know, physically in the mail, like on Friday. I mean, sometimes the the turnaround was was just shockingly fast. Um, It seems, um, and maybe this is COVID related, it seems to take a little bit longer these days. Certainly not anything unreasonable. I'm not complaining. But um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, if the, if the court is going to issue a PCA after an oral argument, what's the typical time frame now that it takes for something like that to occur? And, and at what point should we resign ourselves to the fact that we're probably waiting on an opinion?
0: All right. So that's a loaded question, if I've ever heard <laughs> one. First, let me say, I don't think anything has changed in this respect. Um, your memory might be a little bit jaded at this point with the Tuesday to <laughs> Friday thing. Whenever the judges go to a panel, there's already kind of a per affirmed date set. Um, in fact, they might have a sheet that already has the per affirmed date on it, um, and the judges just need to sign it. Again, You know, nobody's physically signing anything anymore, but electronically, there's already kind of a date in mind that is about a week and a half to two weeks from the date of the panel. The exact formula, eh, I don't remember exactly, but it's always a week and a half to two weeks unless there's an intervening holiday and that kicks it out a, little, a few more days, things like that. But So there's always that date set out. So if the judges get to their panel, whether it's OAW or OA, and afterwards or during they said, no, this is a procurium, this is a PCA. Um, they will make that decision often right there. You know, if, if they've made the decision, they made the decision right there. Your PCA is going to be coming out that week, week and a half to two weeks out forward. And again, that's the way it's always been, as far as I know. Since that'd be like 2006 is when I started at the court. If there is going to be an opinion, you you know as well as anybody, it kind of depends. It, mm-hmm. there, there's you know a whole different host of reasons for. Um, You know why their opinion might be needed, and how long it's going to take to write it, and how many other judges might be involved in it, or whether there's other cases that are reliant on it. And um, you, you, you frankly, you never know. The judges and the staff attorneys get on them pretty quickly, and they're often written rather quickly. And you might get an opinion out rather rather quickly within a month or two months. Uh, we kind of already talked about the review process, so it goes through several different layers of review before anything issues. So you're talking some amount of time, but if if you haven't seen your PCA within a week and a half to two, and there's no holidays in there, at least, more likely than not, somebody is considering writing an opinion. It could be an affirmance. It, it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. need to be a reversal, but somebody's at least thinking about it. It wasn't one of those ones that at panel, it was, everybody was in agreement, it's set, um, we're definitely going to PCA it, sign off on it, and, and send it out.
1: And I guess in theory, one of the judges could want to do some more research or, or check uh, check the record or something and then ultimately still vote to PCA. Yes,
0: and that happens frequently. Uh, it could just be, hey, I have a question on this, and somebody needs to go back to the office and check it. And that stops you from signing it that day, and then mm-hmm. it might take a week or two for you know just everybody to get... You know, back, do the back and forth, and then you get another date in the future. So it could be anything, but you know, again, I'll say if you haven't gotten your PCA in a week and a half or two, at least that means the 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 panel didn't decide a PCA on the date of the panel.
1: Something ha- Something else happened. Yeah, is- and,
0: and it could just be a little more research, mm-hmm. or I want to check something, or whatever. Or it could mean. Yeah, I'm getting a. I get to sit there and wait for an opinion. Who knows? It, it 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 depends.
1: And at any given time, how many cases would you say that that you're working on? How many open cases do you have?
0: Well, right now, you know, you know, I think um, again, Judge Kazama, Mary Beth noted that the the numbers are down a little bit um, during the pandemic, but starting to kick back up. Uh, right now, every staff attorney is like I'm working on. Five oral argument wave cases a month and two OA cases a month um, on average. Unless there is some reason that there might be, I might get kicked off of one because I because I have a potential conflict, or there might be one that's worth two cases because it's some gigantic consolidated case that might have me reading fifty thousand pages of record. And sometimes, you, you know, you'll, you'll have some mercy um, <laughs> given to you if that's nice. the issue. But right. but on average, so I'm, I'm working on you know say, seven or eight cases a month. That's down a little bit from um, what it used to be. Again, back when I worked for the court originally, there were two less judges and the filings were were way up at that point. And they, uh, you know, since 2012 they've been slowly going down. They used to be in the 6,000s. I believe they were in the 5,000s before COVID. And now they're they're much lower than that. Or up until a few months ago I understand they were much lower than that, but now we're starting to pick up with the county appeals and everything else. So... But my average monthly workload right now is kind of that seven cases plus anything else that might show up or any opinions I might be helping out with, things like that.
1: It really is amazing, Uh, and I talked with Judge Kazam uh, and the clerk about this in the previous podcast. It is amazing to me how well the court has continued to function uh, through the COVID issues, the stay-at-home orders, uh, the closure of the circuit courts for a long period of time. I mean, it really feels like the appellate courts did not miss a beat. Definitely.
0: Uh, So, uh, as far as I know, there is no backlog in the 2nd DCA right now. The the small silver lining of the pandemic and of the trial courts closing a little bit is that it gave the appellate courts time to adjust to everybody working from home. There's practically nobody in either building um, right now. I, I know uh judge Kuzon talked about that and about the procedures that are involved statewide as a as a mandated by the supreme court but there's a skeleton crew of uh, it staff and clerks and marshals office people and really nobody else uh, some of the judges will still go in but there are no staff attorneys or very few staff attorneys uh, at all going in 99 percent of us are at home and the slight reduction in cases, I guess, has probably given us a little bit of a chance to figure out how to do the working from home. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've I've only been with the court again for another month or two, but you know, I've gotten used to working from home since since last March. I know, Dwayne, you're the same way. Yep. You've gotten used to working from home for the for the past twelve months. So, and so many other people are. But it let everybody get those procedures in. So there is no backlog whatsoever in the second DCA that I am aware of. You know, the amount of time it takes for a case to get resolved is purely dependent upon the facts of that case and just the general process that it takes to get through briefing and record preparation and assignment to a panel and everything else. So it's amazing that it's worked out that way. And we're pretty much ready for the, the gigantic flood of appeals that's going to be coming our way as the trial courts open up and try to go through their backlog Um, and as we start getting these new county court appeals that are i believe i'll start seeing in the next month or two as a staff attorney as a judicial staff attorney i'm sure central staff is already working on them
1: working in in private practice like i do the certainly the lack of trials and jury verdicts and that sort of thing you know it does have an impact uh, it has slowed down our work some there 's still plenty of appealable orders that get entered, but mm-hmm. uh, like you i 'm looking forward to seeing the circuit courts uh, crank back up and and get the pipeline uh, going again and It sounds like the appellate courts are are ready, willing, and able
0: absolutely we 're ready for it when it comes and and our 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 thoughts are well i won 't speak for anybody else. My thoughts are with uh, my many friends who work in the trial courts, whether they be judges or staff attorneys that I know they're going to be under a lot of pressure trying to deal with all the things they will have to deal with as they let the public back in a little bit and, and things get safer and they can start plowing through the backlog that's not of their creation at all, but they're, they've are they got they've got quite a job on their hands, and we're happy to help however we can from the, from the appellate side.
1: Well, Jared, thanks again for being on the podcast. Uh, congratulations. Um, you know, I'm... I'm thrilled that we have uh, experienced attorneys like you who are willing to serve the court. Uh, I know you're happy to be back. I think that this is uh, you know, maybe where you're happiest, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that, that, that you're back where you belong and really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing some thoughts with us.
0: You're too kind, Wayne. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks to Jared Krukar for his insight into the judicial team at the second district court of appeal. Remember podcasts are never legal advice and nothing that I say, or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes and please consider using our sponsor court surety bond agency for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment Add it to your contacts so you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. So, Jared, I know that you listened to the podcast with uh, Judge Kuzam. Of course. Mary did, did, comes on. Did, didn't everybody? On. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and uh, I, I had tried to ask uh, the question about the new fonts, about uh, Ariel and Bookman. And Judge Kuzam, understandably, I hadn't even thought about this yet, sort of, you know, deferred. Because uh, the way the the way the system works, the way the pipeline works, she isn't really seeing right. uh, the fonts yet. But uh, I know you're you're on the front end now, so you're seeing the filings that are coming in. Do you have you developed any preferences or opinions yet about the new fonts? I, I can't say I've seen the
0: seen many in the briefs themselves, but we're obviously working with them within the suites. Uh, because my beloved Times New Roman is no longer allowed for anything,
1: so. Well, I guess that begs the question, what do they do with the compilation briefs? Do they, do they convert it to a standard font?
0: Yeah, so every, so you, you file a PDF, but then we convert it to Word, right? Right. So the judges don't actually see your brief. Some of the judges will go look at the briefs themselves if they want to. But for the most part, the judges working from the compilations are not ever seeing the actual briefing file, right? Um, so they're seeing whatever the JA puts it in, and in our suite, and, and I don't know if this is every suite, but I think it is. In our suite, we've been using Arial. Hmm. Um, my personal preference, as, as I'm writing, I've been trying to for the past few months, you know, within the court and outside the court, I've been trying to force myself to get used to one or the other, and I don't like Arial, but i hate the way that bookman looks when it's italicized Mm -hmm. it changes the kerning and looks just it just looks funny
1: i don't know if you heard me talk about that on a previous podcast you brought that up i said the same thing and and the other people on the podcast uh had no idea what i was talking about so i'm glad i'm not crazy
0: (laughs) Well, well, I feel like I just admitted that I haven't listened to one of your podcasts, and, and, and whoops. But, but you know, that, that that is my independent feeling, is anytime I use Bookman and then I put something in italics, I just cringe, and usually that's the point that I switch
1: to Ariel. I agree. There's something about the italics characters look odd to me, and I don't know. I don't love it either. and But I hate underlining, too, so I'm stuck with italics. Right. Um, you know, I've sort of gone to it, and I don't know what, I don't know why, but I've adopted a, a, a strategy now of doing motions and short form stuff in Arial mm-hmm. and briefs and long form things in Bookman. Okay. And I don't know why. I just. Bookman feels more serious to me or more, even though it's a little bit comic in its size and its spacing. It's just something about a serif font like that seems more appropriate for briefs where...
0: I'm in the same boat with Seraphons. It, it, to me, it was always Ariel for trial court and Time Zero moment for appellate court. And I, yeah. I couldn't tell you why, but that's just the way I always wrote everything in practice. Um, and the one fortunate thing about the, the uh, italicizing in Bookman is that the second DCA, as you know, when they issue opinions, they underline their right. their case sites and not italicize them. So uh, at least I don't have to look at it like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, I guess in theory... Uh, the the court could use anything they want in the compilation briefs, right? I mean, that's not Trip. subject to anything. But you, but they've kind of the court is sort of standardizing across suites. You think on Ariel.
0: I I mean, I'm not often looking at the analyses and compilations from other attorneys, yeah, but right. but I think from what I've seen, just when I've had to go dig up something that another attorney has worked on, um, I think it's become somewhat standard. I don't know. I'm going to have to check that. And who knows how it'll flesh out over the next few months.
1: Yeah. We're still very early in the process. You know, and five years from now, we won't even be talking about this anymore because we'll all be standard.
0: Right. But now we need everybody who's listening to your podcast to go type up something in Bookman and italicize it and tell us you don't agree with us right now that, that it just looks weird.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does. <laughs>